Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome in to TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And now I am joined by senior criminal justice reporter for Insider, Haven Arecchio Eggersitz. Thanks for joining us, Haven. Thanks for having me on. Yes, so recently, I believe as recent as April 12th, there was a mass shooting in the New York City subway. And the accused subway shooter, Frank James, as it turns out, he had a long criminal history. What was his background? Sure. So um, it turns out that um, Frank James was arrested around nine times um, over a four year period in the 1990s. Uh, some of the crimes were um, harassment. Um, at one point uh, out of New Jersey, he was charged with uh, making a terror threat. Um, none of these crimes were uh, felonies, but he was convicted on um, some of them. Okay, so he has this long criminal history, yet he ends up with this gun. What's going on here? Yeah, so um, every I, I'm sure you know in the U.S. Um, gun laws are different in every state and they're very complicated. But on a federal level, you cannot buy a firearm from a licensed dealer if you have a felony conviction. Um, he did not have a felony conviction. He had um, plenty of other charges though. And uh, so in Ohio, he was able to walk into a federally licensed gun shop and, and buy a gun. So he bought this gun in Ohio, but then he comes to New York City. Uh, is there supposed to be some kind of registration thing going on here? Um, he he did not um, have an issue doing so. I mean, he he owned the gun legally, and he he brought it to New York. All right. So Frank James gets this gun in Ohio, brings it to New York, and. As I understand, this is something that is kind of one of the holes in the system here because he has this long criminal history, but nothing is a felony. What's what's getting done about this or what, what's the conversation? So a lot of experts um, will note that most mass shootings are actually um, with legally owned firearms. Um, so you, you might not have a, a violent felony um, conviction, but that doesn't mean you won't commit one in the future. Uh, a lot of experts say that um, one of the most important things to do on a federal level is to enact a law that um, if, if you're displaying sort of 
violent tendencies or um, a threat to yourself um, or others. Uh, of course, uh, most gun deaths in America are actually um, a lot, many of them are su suicides. Uh, so your family would be able to go into a court and petition the court um, to make it illegal for you to buy, buy a firearm. Um, so especially in light of this, when um, Frank James had a long open uh, record online of just making horrible threats and, and saying terrible things in um, his social media videos, uh, that law would have been helpful. Yeah, it sounds like it would have been pretty helpful, especially uh, for the individuals who were on the subway that day, as I'm quite certain it was very, very terrifying for them. Uh, and also for many of us in society who think about individuals who don't seem to be the most balanced and seem to be in the social media space advocating for uh, harm to others or something uh, that puts us for fear that they're going to harm others, yet they can easily go get guns. What? I guess what can be done? Well, that's that's what experts um, are pushing for, or advocates for gun safety, at least. Um, they they do feel that um, the state system, where laws are dramatically different, you know, across the country, um, it's not helpful because you can, of course, like what happened, buy a gun in Ohio and bring it to New York City. Um, so so that's what people are are pushing for. Wow, and so in your research and uh, talking to these experts where there were, I believe from Giffords Law Center, um, and what more are they saying in addition to maybe changing some of these laws, what more could be done? Well, they, they, they're they really advocating for law changes, <laughs> that's the, their primary goal. Um, they also say that we have a societal issue here. Um, in the US, there are more guns than people. So even if laws, he wasn't able to go into this Ohio gun shop and legally buy the firearm, uh, it wouldn't have been too difficult to go out and um, illegally find one. Um, so, you know, we, we need to, uh, experts from Gifford say and, and other um, gun safety advocates say that we need a societal shift where we don't think that guns keep people safe. No, it definitely doesn't seem to be. It seems that we are harmed more by guns than we're protected by them, uh, in part and virtually because we have so many of them. And I know that there is a lot of talk, at least possibilities of the Supreme Court uh, in terms of its dealing with Second Amendment issues. But I guess when it comes to the reporting and the research that you do, what do you think is on the forefront for this issue? I think individually states are continuing to make change on a small level. I know that um, the popular change is that um, it's it's a red flag law. It um, you know so if if somebody in your family is seeming um, unhinged or or they seem like they're um, a danger to their own life, you can petition the court. So more states are um, moving in that direction as well. Yeah, because I would actually think that family members of people who are close to an individual can be able to detect first off if there's something that is unstable about them and also would be the ones with knowledge of knowing whether they had a firearm on them. So I think that could be a pretty powerful thing that you have essentially gun safety advocates lobbying for. And so I hope there is some kind of change out there and hopefully that is on the forefront because it definitely doesn't seem to me that SCOTUS or any courts are doing anything to curb the Second Amendment. Um, what are you saying? I mean, um, I think that there is a huge lobby that uh, pushes back on on the other side. There's a, you know, calls for calls for freedom. There are 
to better it that, you know, people, if the guns are out there, people are going to get them illegally. But of course, um, as we're seeing, that's not really how it works in um, situations of mass shootings, at least. Um, so, you know, uh, in terms of these unique situations, are there anything else that's very unique to mass shootings when it comes to firearms? Um, yeah, well, firearms, um, this case was actually a, a nine millimeter Glock handgun, but a lot of mass shootings um, are AR-15 gu um, guns. So this was unusual in that case. And in terms of AR-15s potentially being banned or limited in some way, are you seeing any movement uh, as far as it concerns that? Because it seems like why would you need an AR-15 type weapon um, in this modern day and age? Yeah, there's um, huge pushback against AR-15 type weapons um, from gun safety advocates and uh, some politicians. I'm I'm not sure how far that will get. Yeah, I'm not either, but I know it's extremely dangerous and also seeing what has been done with the Second Amendment in terms of whatever its original intent was as opposed to kind of the modern day agenda and how courts have interpreted it. It's kind of scary because we are effectively killing each other and killing ourselves and no one's curbing that because it advances capitalism. But that is a conversation for another day. But we also saw with with family members who are who've had loved ones die and victims of shooting, particularly when it comes to school shootings, that there are gun manufacturers being held accountable to a certain extent. We saw that with, I believe, Remington out in Connecticut. And so it makes me wonder, is that a potential avenue that will help advance gun safety when you start holding these manufacturers accountable? What are your thoughts? I believe that that might be a quicker route for a lot of um, victims of these high profile shootings um, than waiting for um, you know, legislation to pass. Yeah, it definitely seems like it could be a possible avenue. Um, but then again, when you have a lot of these companies with billions and billions of dollars and the ability to file for bankruptcy, as I believe Remington did, um, uh, when they were facing the litigation, then you know we're gonna have loopholes and things are not necessarily going to advance other than increasing a death toll. <sighs> but in terms of your work and what you're doing and what you're looking into next, what is on the forefront? So I've been covering the court case. I was at the crime scene, of course, but um, I was also at the arraignment. So I'm just keeping an eye on um, how that progresses um, and what you know other other details that come out from this case. And that's for the court case for Mr. James? Yes. Fantastic, and have you learned anything unique about um, the gentleman? We do know that he turned himself in um, and that he waited for police. Yeah, so um, there was a massive manhunt in New York. As you said, it, but we were terrorized. Um, people did not want to take the subway, but we learned that he was um, using public transit for the next day to get around New York. And eventually he called police from a McDonald's on the Lower East Side to, to turn himself in. Police didn't find him at that McDonald's, but he was in the general area and he was um, taken into custody. But what we learned in the later days was that he visited and ate at Katz, which is um, a really famous touristy deli. Um, and he was just moving around the city. Um, so that was you know, kind of shocking. Yeah, and uh, has there been any indicia of a motive? Well, they haven't, the law enforcement haven't identified a motive, but um, it was pretty clear on his social media accounts that he had um, these really enraged thoughts about 
a whole lot of topics. Um, one thing that he brought up quite a bit was uh, homelessness on the subways. And uh, he was really upset about homelessness on the subways and even at one point referenced, um, uh, you know, violence. Wow, wow, that's very interesting in part, uh, largely in part because homeless people are particularly vulnerable. So the thought that he would want to shoot or do anything dangerous to them, it just seems uh, ludicrous. Uh, and so I hope that uh, whatever happens with Mr. James, that justice is done and that there are no copycats or anyone else out there engaging this behavior. But as far as it concerns the work that you do and people being able to contact and get in touch with you and follow along, where can they find you on social media? I'm uh, on Twitter uh, at Insider Haven. And um, of course, you can find my author page on the Insider website. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And anybody who wants to follow what's going on with Frank James and his prosecution, please definitely check out Insider and follow Haven, senior criminal justice reporter for Insider. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's Adrian Lawrence with more of the conversation and we are going to continue our conversation about guns. This time I'm joined by Abene Clayton. She's a lead reporter on Guardian Guns and Lies in America, the series. Thank you so much for joining us, Abene. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, so first off, what is this series, Guns and Lies? Yeah, so the series started in 2019 and at the time it was started by my colleague Lois Beckett in the West Coast office for The Guardian. And it was really about kind of charting what was happening in cities like Oakland where gun violence was hitting historic lows. And I came on as a reporter from Richmond to kind of tell Richmond, California specifically to tell those stories that go unseen. So often when we talk about gun violence, there's kind of the immediate shooting, the police report comes out, maybe we hear about a vigil, but then there's not much. And there are families, thousands, hundreds of thousands of families who have faced a lot of um, a lot of trauma and those things are left out of popular news narratives. Often we hear more about mass shootings and things of that nature, but that's really not what constitutes the majority of gun violence in the US. So at the Guns and Lies in America project, we try to um, tell those untold stories and give readers a full picture of what gun violence looks like, um, excuse me, looks like in the state. All right, and so full picture, as you mentioned, is something that people are hoping to get always because you want the truth. But I also know that there are a lot of anxieties right now over crime and violence playing this central role when it comes to the midterms. And those are coming up pretty soon. And I know that you are creating what you say is a fresh set of stories that really puts the media, mainstream in particular, and politicians claims about crimes and violence into context. What are you finding? Well. One of the most interesting things that's come up in the last couple of years is that there has been an increase in gun violence, but it's been talked about in the context of this um, this crime wave that has a lot of you know political facets to it. So we are trying to create and put out stories that go beyond those narratives that can include data and in our fact-based, but also talk about the people who are being most impacted, which in the United States tends to be black, Latino, and um, lower income folks. So those are the things that we try to uplift and dispel you know, myths and rumors about the reasons behind gun violence are and the solutions for them and try to bring a more holistic picture to the um, conversation. And so when it comes to that conversation and the black and brown voices that 
are left out or some of the narratives that are left out there. What would you say that you're seeing the most in terms of stories that need to be told? I think one thing that mainstream media, if you will, I mean, I work for The Guardian, so I don't know that I can like call out mainstream media. But one of the things that I notice a lot is there's a there's a myth that Black, Latino, lower income folks are either apathetic or complicit to gun violence that happens in their communities. And that's not the truth that for some reason, um, the folks who are most impacted by gun violence are impacted because they chose to live in a bad neighborhood or because they weren't good good parents. And these sort of myths and stereotype, stereotypes make it difficult for people to get the services and the resources they need. It makes it difficult for folks to get the empathy necessary for there to be a, um, a kind of consensus among voters and folks in the US that we need to dedicate resources and legislation to making sure that those who are the most harmed by gun violence are also at the center of the conversations around solutions. Because right now, the people who are most affected by like mass incarceration, criminalization are the same ones who are dying from gun violence at disproportionate rates. And a lot of the times, the solutions brought forth, <clears throat> excuse me, don't come from these communities. So they usually lead to more surveillance, more incarceration, and a larger police presence, which doesn't necessarily make everyone safe and isn't necessarily going to lead to to justice, which really is and I think should be the goal when we're talking about how to address gun violence. Absolutely, and I would like to say, you know, creating more avenues for viable options when it comes to people's economic opportunities, as well as just ensuring that people have the social services, as you mentioned, people not getting the services that they need and that they should be entitled to as members of our community. But unfortunately, we see these race, class, and I'm sure even to some extent gender biases come out and come into play when individuals who are black and brown from these communities suffer and you know maybe lose their life or lose loved ones as a result of gun violence. Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the things that um, I appreciate you saying is talking about kind of the, the gender and economic factors at play. Because it's interesting when I do stories about gun violence, it's so specific, like community gun violence isn't the same thing as gun violence in like a um, a domestic situation, you know, where you're having intimate partner partner violence. But for some reason, you know, well, for a lot of reasons that uh, that we may discuss, these things are like lumped together in a way that um, people see it as a one size fits all. It's like, okay, either we get rid of all the guns, we put everybody who had a, a prior gun charge away, or, you know, we leave people to deal with what they can. And I think one thing we try to do with our coverage is talk about the specific instances of gun violence. Um, like, you know, violence against black women is something that we've really been trying to, to pull out. It's a unique issue. It happens in circumstances that are different than what may happen with um, with young black men who are the most, you know, disparately impacted by this. But we don't pull those kind of stories out. You know, we make it seem like the communities that are impacted by this are like a monolith, you know, and every instance of gun violence is one thing or another, when in fact each one is unique and requires a very specific set of um, of answers, you know, and needs accountability from everyone from police to, to DAs to service providers. But if you don't talk to the people most impacted, you won't know what systems they interact with and what needs to be fixed. 
And something also that gets me is that we have a lot of these circumstances created by virtue of racism, classism, all of these isms, whether it's redlining or how cities have been structured where you run an entire freeway right through maybe a blossoming productive community of color. And then all of a sudden it's completely disenfranchised and you know, and then you'll have people in leadership just shoulder shrugging it. When no, you've created this this situation, you've contributed to these circumstances. So to just kind of point a finger saying it's a moral failing is not the answer in any form or fashion when you are part of the problem and you're maintaining this problem. But also to kind of build off of more of what you were speaking about when it comes to black women in particular, which made me think of victimhood and how black women are rarely seen as being the victim. And I know you looked into this issue of who gets to be a victim. What have you finding? Absolutely, I appreciate you asking that. Early in my gun violence coverage, when I was talking to community members, one of the things they would always say to me, you know, when I would ask, what would you like people to know about your loved one, usually a son or a daughter who was killed, they would always say, you know, my kid was not a gang member. They did well in school. They loved puppies. They took care of babies. There were all these wonderful things. And it would make me really sad. I call it posthumous exoneration, you know, like your child has been killed violently and then you have to then do the work of grieving and clearing their name in the court of public opinion, you know. And I never judge a parent for wanting to do that. If you have the opportunities, you know, you know, speak up on your child. Period. So, when it comes to to that level of victimhood, we have what happens in communities where, like I said, black folks, especially young black folks who are killed, are seen as complicit. And then when we talk about black women, one of the things I think we hear so often is, you know, if it's a domestic violence situation, a lot of the times we hear, you know, why didn't you leave? Didn't you know this? Didn't you know that? A lot of really flippant and disgusting language. Really, when you look at these stories, a lot of these women did everything they could to get out of the situation. You know, they did the restraining orders, they tried to get, you know, guns taken, they went through every recourse, but still these systems did not protect them. And I feel like that is lost in these conversations. And to be a victim, you know, can sometimes, you know, some people um, kind of bristle at that term and I understand why, but there's a part of victimhood that leads to like lionization. You know, like when we talk about families who have been impacted by school shootings, that lionization of their, um, of their survivorhood, of their victimhood leads to change. You know, it leads to national platforms and it leads to being seen as someone who's like, yes, I was hurt. And now my mission is to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. But if you're never seen as like fully human or a a victim or an innocent victim, let alone, that doesn't happen for you. And then these stories continue to be like pushed to the back burner and only the people who know what's going on and care what's going on are talking about it. But like I said earlier, to get a critical mass of people who care and to get movement on this, it needs to just be like, de facto, if someone is shot and killed, that person is a victim looking into their past, trying to pick things apart to try to, you know, take away that innocence is um, is built on racism. And it doesn't take into account, like you said, the redlining. And we just had a story come out about Wilmington here in California, where, you know, the places with the most gun violence are also the places with the highest pollution. You know, you can talk about lead and all these things that can go back to accountability that are just completely forgotten. The second somebody sees is the black person from the hood who has been shot and killed. And it's very frustrating. And like I said, something that we're trying to um, to address with the gun violence project. And I have seen more reporters try to do these stories more holistically and look into some of 
those underlying factors that lead to gun violence and not immediately going to like a police source as the number one expert on community violence. So there is there are some hopeful changes, but there's also been so much backlash over the past couple of years for anything that is looking like reform because there has been an increase in gun violence. But what people don't talk about when they talk about that increase is that it's been concentrated in the same neighborhoods that have been dealing with redlining, disparate levels of pollution, underinvestment in schools. And nobody talks about that, you know, and it's um, you know, something that needs to change. And I and I see progress, but there there's room for more, of course. Absolutely, without question. And to be able to tell these stories and through a lens that shows individuals humanity and actually invest in them. That's something that mainstream media, and I think no matter where you work for, you can call it out because the fact is that we know that media is what, 70% plus white and male. And so we have a system that's built on patriarchal white supremacy. And as a result, certain lives are valued more than others. And certain lives aren't even seen as being lives and having any kind of humanity in them. And so the coverage is something reflective of that. So thank you so much for what you're doing in terms of covering these voices and these stories and how people are impacted by gun violence. I very, very much appreciate it. And for those out there who wanna follow you and check out your work, where can they find more? So you can find my Twitter, it's Abene spelled A-B-E-N-E underscore rights as in the words, rights. And um, if you look up my my first and last name, Abene Clayton on The Guardian, all of my, you know, um, sad and encouraging stories will come up. Thank you so much. It's Abene Clayton, lead reporter on Guardians, Guns and Lies in America series. Thank you again, Abene. Thank you for having me.